Well, good morning, church family. And if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we just want to extend a warm welcome to you. My name is Randy, and I'm privileged, so very privileged, uh, to be the uh, lead minister here at the church. And I'm going to be in a room called the Fireside Room. It's outside these glass doors and to the right. And um, just every Sunday, it's just a highlight of uh, my Sunday to be able to just have a few moments of just connection time uh, with uh, our newcomers and uh, to be able to pray uh, over you and with you and just have a time of encouragement. So I just want to uh, you to know that's where I'm going to be, and I, I would love to hear a few moments uh, uh, love of uh, your story uh, there in the fireside room afterwards. So we want you to feel very much at home here uh, in the church. Um, um, so as Sabrina mentioned in uh, her prayer, we are in a teaching series over the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. And we had an introduction to the fruit of the Spirit last week. We're going to be talking about love today. And that takes us to our scripture reading. If you have your Bibles, um, I'd like you to turn first to the New Testament book of John chapter 13. It's on page 900 of your church Bibles. I've got the verses up on the screen uh, if you'd like to read uh, up there as well. Uh, and then I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 17. And then I'm going to go to Galatians chapter 5, which is where we will see the dimensions of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, I'm going to read Galatians 5, 13 to 15. John 13, 12 to 17. Galatians 5, 13 to 15. When he had washed their feet, that is Jesus concerning his disciples. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is God's word. Well, thank you again for last week's reception. Sarah and I are so very grateful um, for just the love and, and celebration we received. I've got two of my favorite pictures from among uh, all of the pictures that were taken. This is the first one. It's my little granddaughter, Audrey. And uh, we were going to get a picture of my grandson, Elias, 19 months old, but he was off running and hard to track him. But uh, that one there with Miss Audrey is just a special picture with her grandfather. And then the next picture, it was this uh, prayer time. Um, my goodness, that's a church I want to belong to. 
a church that believes in prayer and a church that is connected in community and in love for one another. So we just are so very grateful uh, for you. I received a note this past week from someone who uh, was at a church with us last Sunday, and they had attended Windsor Road uh, in the 1990s, and they were back for a visit. And I don't think they knew the reception uh, that was going on, but they just came. And so uh, I received a a note, and here's an excerpt from that note. Uh, Randy, it was such a delight to reconnect with you and see what an effective ministry Windsor Road still has in the Champaign area. Our family enjoyed our Sunday morning with you all. And, and that's what really encourages my heart, that uh, when our guests come, they sense the Lord's presence through you, through his people. And it's so encouraging to hear that. And it's good uh, when folks who have uh, been here and then they've been away and then they've come back, they find the return visit meaningful and, uh, because they find God flourishing in our midst and they sense organizational health. And um, it's not always the case when you go uh, to places of the past, is it? Some places in our past are a shell of what they once were. Love has atrophied. Where there was once humility, there is now conceit. Where people once encouraged one another, they now provoke one another. Um, joy has become envy, and it can show up, not just in churches, but schools, businesses, um, neighborhoods, families, marriages. And when you experience uh, that kind of decline, you ask, what happened? What happened and can it be corrected? Uh, what, what was the problem? And is there a solution? And those two questions guide us today as we consider the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The Apostle Paul did not wake up one morning and decide to write these verses as an inspirational thought to be blasted out on his Apostle Paul app to his followers. That's not what's going on here. Rather, these verses are chemotherapy for a cancer that was killing congregations in the region of New Testament Galatia. And the cancer is legalism. And the cure is a chemotherapy called love. And that takes us to our big idea. Legalism kills. The cancer of legalism kills. But love, cross-bearing, serving, Christ-centered love gives life. Legalism kills, love gives life. Paul wrote Galatians as medicine to cure a multi-congregational disease in this region. And his entire discussion about the Spirit's fruit is, a, is course correction. 
that if left unchecked, would have catastrophic consequences for the cause of Christ. So I want to talk about the cancer, the problem, and then let's talk about the chemo, the cure. Problem, solution, cancer, cure. First, the problem. After, after a successful launch, the cancer of legalism began to weaken God's people in a region of the Roman Empire in the first century called Galatia. Now, you can read more about this in Acts chapter 13 and 14. But Paul and Barnabas planted several churches in what is now uh, Turkey. And back then it was called Galatia. Here's a map to show you that it was really a, a region in this first century province called Asia Minor. The wealthiest province in the Roman Empire this region called Galatia. And Paul, interestingly enough, found his way in this region and to these specific cities where these churches were planted because of a sickness that he had. Just look in Galatians chapter 4, verse 13 in your Bibles. He says, you know, it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Must have been serious because verse 14, Paul says it was a trial. Though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. You received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Say, what was this ailment? Keep reading verse 15. I testify... To you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Look at chapter 6, verse 11. At the conclusion of this letter, Paul says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So evidently there was some disease that affected Paul's vision. That's what the conjecture is. And Paul was sick. He stayed there for a time. They could have scorned him, but they helped him. So Paul's frailty provided an opportunity for preaching. Just, there's a whole message in and of itself, isn't it? Sometimes we feel like we've got to have everything running at 100% to feel good enough to share our faith or preach or share Christ. That's not this, is it? It was out of Paul's frailty, out of this vulnerability, out of this weakness, there was an opportunity to share Christ. And when Paul shared Christ in his weakness, there was an overwhelming response. The Galatians experienced an extraordinary outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Acts, it says they experienced miracles. And think about it. In the heartland of the Roman Empire, the wealthiest province, these folks had every material blessing that they could possibly imagine. And yet something was missing in their lives. The Holy Spirit came upon them and individuals and marriages and families, and folks of different ethnicities, and, and backgrounds came together for no other reason than their love and allegiance to Jesus. The Spirit of Christ brought a never-before-felt unity. Christian communities were formed. And most of them were non-Hebrew. 
And Paul's relationship to them was that he called them uh, my little children. Chapter 4, verse 19. My little children. That's how affectionate he was for the believers in this church. If you go to Acts 13 and 14, you'll read words like filled with joy, strengthening, doors of faith opened. Amazing thing was happening in Galatia. It was beautiful. And yet after Paul's departure, false teachers infiltrated those communities, insisting that believers observe certain Hebrew rituals, specifically circumcision and certain dietary rules. In other words, these teachers claimed that Christ was not enough. It was Christ plus. Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus kosher foods. In other words, they were adding to the gospel. And whenever you add to the gospel, you actually take away from the gospel. You dilute its power. And a spiritual carcinoma mushroomed called legalism. Legalism. Legalism is a, is a way of thinking that connects our worth with our achievements. Legalism is what happens when our identity is connected to our accomplishments. Legalism happens when what we do, not what Christ has done, becomes the end game. See? And legalism is not just what happens in religious places like churches. I mean, it's, it's kind of just a, it's a mindset that can infect any realm. I think Americans are professionals at this. Um, in fact, one literary critic um, made this observation about American culture when she said that the most purely, proudly American genre of writing might be the to-do list. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? What an interesting observation. But you can see, you know, where that heads, right? You, you um, start keeping this standard or you establish this standard, try to keep this standard, and then you just judge others by that standard. It's an artificial standard. It's legalism. And legalism is to love what Roundup is to your lawn. You know, kill it dead. And why? Because the poison in legalism is scorekeeping. Scorekeeping. Jesus talked about this in a parable, Luke chapter 18, 9 through 12. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And where there's one, there's going to be the other, you see? Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. 
The, the most prominent word in that prayer is I. I. It's legalism. It's scorekeeping. T.S. Eliot is a writer who once said, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Uh, this summer, I um, got a book um, by an, it's an excellent book. It's, it's by an author named David Zoll. It's called Seculosity, Seculosity. David Zoll wrote, religion is not just what you rely on for meaning or hope. Religion is what you rely on for enoughness. Listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere especially when it comes to anxiety and loneliness and exhaustion and the divisions that plague us. People are scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We think that if we were to scale some predetermined mountain peak, then value, vindication, and righteousness would be ours. If we had enough, we would be enough. But here's the wrinkle, and you know what's coming. No matter how close we get, we never quite arrive at enough. And here's the tragedy of it. People are suffering and dying under the torture of the fantasy self they're failing to become. And they're not the only ones who suffer. Others are inflicted by their suffering as well. That, that's what Paul tells us in chapter 5, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's what happens when you become a legalist. And Paul is baffled by this. He asks questions about this. Chapter 4, verse 15. What has become of your blessedness? Verse 16. Have I become your enemy? Chapter 5, verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul says the only way this is going to end well is the medicine of love, the chemotherapy of love, to kill the cancer of legalism. Paul administers the chemotherapy of love. He, now, get this. Get what he doesn't say. What you need is the chemotherapy of another Bible study. I'm not saying don't. Go to a Bible study. It's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying, you don't. That's not what Paul says you need. Paul says what you really need is the experience of a spiritual retreat in a quiet mountainside place by lake. <laughs> I'm not saying don't do that. I'm saying that's not what Paul says. 
What does he say will kill the cancer of legalism? Love. Love. Galatians 5, 5 and 6, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Galatians 5, 13, You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He goes on to say that the entire law can be summarized in one word, love. Love your neighbor as yourself. And what is love? Love is the willing self-sacrifice for the good of another that does not require reciprocation or that the person being loved is deserving. Love is being willing to have your life complicated by the needs and struggles of others without impatience or anger. Love is actively fighting the temptation to be critical and judgmental toward another while looking for ways to encourage and praise. Love is making a daily commitment to resist the needless moments of conflict that come from pointing out and responding to minor offenses. Love is being more committed to unity and understanding than winning an argument or being right. And love is the crucifixion of self toward the life of others. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22, is love. It's intentional that Paul begins this ninefold dimensional catalog with love because out of love flows all the other dimensions. So joy is delightful love. Peace is restful love. Patience is enduring love. Kindness and goodness are enjoyable love. Gentleness is tender love. Faithfulness is steadfast love. And self-control is disciplined love. And here's the deal. Please hear me. The fruit of the Spirit you know, does not grow automatically. The, the ninefold dimension of the Spirit's fruit do not just suddenly appear just because someone came to Christ, prayed for the Spirit, and then waited for the fruit to arrive on Amazon two-day delivery, now on Sundays. <laughs> yes, there may be initial signs of spiritual life. Uh, my apologies to the FedEx folks, etc., etc. And many new Christians tell, you know, of inexplicable desires to love and forgive and gentle and be pure and to be holy. And the, I mean, the Lord has put this in my heart. Where does this come from? This comes from the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean it's coasting. No, these, what you're experiencing are the blossoms in the orchard. To enjoy the fruit, you've got to learn to garden. And that means learning to cultivate and irrigate, and keep the pests away, and be alert for blight and mold, and you got to cut away whatever sucks the life out of that tree. Then 
the fruit will appear. And notice, notice the final dimension in verse 23. What's the last dimension of the ninefold fruit of the Spirit? What is that word? What is it? Talk to me. What's the last of the nine? Self-control. Self-control. So if fruit were automatic, why would self-control be mentioned? So don't throw away your to-do list. Okay? Just don't use that as your righteousness because Christ is your righteousness. Christ is enough. Please hear me. We need to take this seriously. In our culture, people are looking for this magic elixir to sort of, you know, bring peace to our divided world. I'm telling you, this, this is what our world needs. This is, this is why we were created. We were created for God. Anything less than that, we go hungry. And if we're not more notably loving others and not just loving God and, and singing passionately, which, which is so important in corporate worship, but if we're not notably loving others, our enemies, how are we different? How are we different? So then what might it look like to cultivate the kind of spirit-filled love that Paul is talking about? Well, if, if we're struggling to love, we need to go to the source of love, God. God is love. We need to ask him to fill us. And by fill us, I mean he's in charge. He's driving. And then we need to look to the model of love. Jesus himself. And now you know why we read John chapter 13. Turn there, would you? John chapter 13 tells us it was the feast before the Passover. Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So, what John is telling us is that here's what Christian love is. However else the world chooses to define love, how Jesus uses the word love is right here. This is what he means. Jesus' love is a unifying, defending, stooping, serving, enduring love to the end. Verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So, so whatever is about to happen next, Jesus is fully aware of who he is and what he possesses. He is the exalted Son of God, possessing all power. I mean, he knew where he had come from. He knew where he was going. He's returning to glory through ignominious suffering. So this is not a story about Jesus abdicating. This is about leveraging power for the flourishing of others. And so during supper, Christ got up to do what should have already been done at that supper. You know, in that culture, foot washing was as common as brushing your teeth. And people had sandals and roads were dusty. Israel was arid. Summer was hot and dry. Winter was cold and muddy. You'd enter a home, you'd take off your sandals at the door, and there you'd wash your feet. 
One scholar says it rather frankly. It involved washing off not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrement, which was tipped out of houses into the streets, and animal waste, which was left on country roads and town streets. This task of hospitality to honor guests was normally assigned to slaves or servants of low status, so much so that foot washing was synonymous with slavery. So the disciples entered that upper room, reclined around the table. That's how they ate back then. They're leaning on their elbows. Their feet are extended. They're in close quarters. And and it was as if all 12 waited for that slave to show up and wash feet. And there was no slave. And then follows the awkward, well, someone needs to do this, but I'm not going to. Furthermore, Luke 22, 24 says, there arose a dispute or argument among them as to who was the greatest. And that word dispute, speaking of love, literally means love of strife. Don't you know people who just love to argue? They just like to argue for the sake of arguing. That's what's going on here. Within 24 hours of the cross, supper was served to 12 self-promoting mouths with 24 filthy feet. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Nazi Germany, and he once wrote that, you know, when people come together, there's almost this invisible, unconscious life and death contest. We meet someone and we start sizing them up, right? We look for some strategic advantage, some angle by which we can assume control over that person. How can I figure out who that person is so that I can get what I want or negotiate what I need from them? So we ask, you know, information questions. Where, where do you work? Where'd you go to school? Who's your family? And we start dividing the world up over different spectrums, more gifted, less gifted, strong, stronger, strongest, educated, more educated, less educated, popular, not so popular. And, and, and there's a sizing up that goes on Comparing, justifying, and it it occurs in the most polite Midwestern way. Earlier in the Gospels, James and John wanted Jesus to grant them the right to sit on either side of him in glory. (laughs) So while all of this is going on, then suddenly one of them feels the cool water splashing from the pitcher And they think to themselves, well, it's about time. And they look down, and it's Jesus. Look at verse 4 of chapter 13. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Now, is that not a picture of the incarnation or what? Jesus disrobed his heavenly glory and put on human flesh. And he did what no Hebrew servant would be asked to do. He stooped to wash the dirty feet of his friends. I tell you, there is no parallel in ancient literature for a person of superior status voluntarily washing the feet of someone of inferior status. But Jesus assaults traditional social hierarchy. He's not just an honored teacher who's performing this shameful act. He is the holy divine son of God 
with sovereignty over the cosmos, who has taken on the role of a slave. And verse 2 says, did you see this? The devil had put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. So John clearly states this before the washing so that we would all know that Christ washed all of them. Uh, the scholar that I resonate with most in this study said this, Judas betrayed Jesus with clean feet. And these 12 were arguing about their greatness. Christ was showcasing greatness. And then afterwards, Jesus interpreted what he did. Do you see that? That's verse 12. If I, if I wash your feet, you must wash the feet of others. Now, note he didn't say, not, you know, I wash your feet, now you wash mine. That's not what he said. He said, treat others as I have treated you. Love others as I have loved you. What is not beneath my dignity is certainly not beneath yours. There is no hierarchy in a group where each washes the other's feet. There can't be. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that dynamic needs to be a part of our DNA. Look at verse 16, it says, A servant is not greater than his master. Hmm. Let's say that together on three. One, two, three. A servant is not greater than his master. Again, a servant is not greater than his master. Hmm. We're not talking about some sentimental service. We're talking about rugged, gritty service that self-sacrifices. We're talking about a service that does not demand reciprocation or worthiness of the beloved. And to the degree that we follow our king his way, his church flourishes. Again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The church does not need brilliant personalities, but faithful servants of Jesus Christ. God, God has called us to be his garden. We, we're an orchard of the Spirit's fruit, a fertile orchard. God, think about it. God has elected this congregation to exemplify the reality of Eden, the very garden of God, expressing the Spirit, recalling the love that was originally in paradise. That's right. That's right. When outsiders come in our community and in our groups, and in our individual conversations, God has elected us in such a way that when they come into contact with us and then leave, so that's what Eden is like. That's what Eden is like. The very garden of God expressing the Spirit. We're to, we're, we're to be a garden church teeming with right, New creation fruit. We are to be an oasis in a wasteland. A, a place of nourishment and healing. Right in the middle of this present evil age. God did not give us brothers and sisters in his kingdom family for us to dominate them. 
Jesus' dominion over all is not a dominion of heavy-handedness. It is that of humble service. And to the degree that we embody this and live this out, that kind of love, it, it not just kills legalism, but it, it provides for a flourishing, juicy, ripe orchard of love. Amen. Hmm. Amen. So here's the take-home question. You, we've got to finish this sermon outside these doors. And it, it's this question right here. Here it is. Lord, who needs your love today through my life? Who needs your love today through my life? Who needs your love today through my life? I'd like for us to close our teaching time with the prayer that we prayed together last week. Here it is. Join me. Heavenly Father, we pray that this day we may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, we pray that this day we may take up our cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, we pray that this day you will fill us with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And God's people said, Amen.